There had been abuse in my family, uh, but it was mostly musical in nature. Are you ready to get your world rocked? Ready! Are you ready to get your mind blown? Do it! One, two, three, four! Fame, divorce, maternal smothering, paranoia. These are just some of the many cheerful topics Pink Floyd tackles on its epic concept album, The Wall. Today we get to the heart of why this remains a classic release 30 years later. I'm Jim DeRogatis of Vocalo.org. And I'm Greg Kant of the Chicago Tribune. We conduct a classic album dissection of Pink Floyd's The Wall and review the new collaborative record by author Nick Hornby and singer Ben Folds. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. From WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX, you're listening to Sound Opinions. And time now for some music news. Greg, as you well know, that is Everybody Needs Somebody to Love, one of the classic soul tracks from the great Solomon Burke, who died recently at the age of 70 while flying to Amsterdam. What an incredible voice, what an incredible personality. Never achieved the level of Otis Redding or James Brown fame, but I'd say he was every bit the performer and the musician that those guys were. Plus, he had an incredibly full life. I mean, when you see the obituaries, 21 children, 90 grandchildren, and 19 great-grandchildren. This guy did some living. He had a very full life, Jim, on many different levels. You know, he was also a mortician and also a minister. He was born above a church in Philadelphia, so he had gospel music in his blood almost from the day he was born. And he was the Wonder Boy preacher in in Philadelphia for a long time. He had his own gospel radio show. Got signed to Atlantic Records at the height of Atlantic Records fame, one of the great soul and R&B labels of the 50s and 60s. Jerry Wexler, the great producer who worked with all the great talents of that era, including Ray Charles and Aretha Franklin, called Solomon Burke the greatest soul singer of all time. Now, we just played Everybody Needs Somebody to Love. I think a lot of people know that song primarily because the Blues Brothers performed it in their first movie. It was a a key scene in that movie, the the big concert. And similarly for his other big hit, uh, Solomon Burke's Cry to Me, best known perhaps because of its performance in the movie Dirty Dancing, one of the big scenes in that movie. So Burke wasn't a huge chart presence, but he was a huge personality and a tremendous influence. I mean, those stage performances with that 15-foot cape, the crown, the scepter, the king of rock and soul, as a Baltimore DJ once dubbed him, and he really took that to heart. Yeah. You know, he brought that out on stage, that outside personality, that huge voice. Everybody who saw him 
was motivated and magnetized by this guy. He was such a huge influence on so many bands. I mean, Rolling Stones, Wilson Pickett covered his songs. He made a big comeback in the last decade, a great album in 2002 called Don't Give Up On Me, where people like Elvis Costello, Van Morrison, Bob Dylan all wrote songs for Burke because he was so well-respected in the industry. And I think that's a great way to pay tribute to him is to play a track from that album, which showed a completely different side of this guy, a more introspective side, a more nuanced singer than he was in those early days when he was just belting it out and testifying on stage. Just an incredibly versatile voice. Here he is from that Don't Give Up On Me album in collaboration with his great friends, the Five Blind Boys of Alabama, on a song called None of Us Are Free on Sound Opinions. That is the great Solomon Burke on Sound Opinions, the song None of Us Are Free. The soul legend is dead at the age of 70.
Is there anyone home? Come on, come on down. I hear you feeling down. Well, I can ease your pain, get you. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and that is the song Comfortably Numb from Pink Floyd's 11th studio album, released in November 1979, Greg, The Wall. Why are we talking about The Wall? Well, for one thing, it's the 30th anniversary of what happens to be the best-selling double album of all time and one of the top 10 best-selling albums of all time, period. Certainly a magnum opus by Pink Floyd. Is it Pink Floyd's best album? I don't know. We'll get into that. But it's in the news because Roger Waters, the lyricist, conceptualist, bassist, one of the key songwriters in Pink Floyd, has been touring it, minus Pink Floyd. And it it looks to be certainly one of the top three most successful tours of 2010. 30 years later, people are still paying buku bucks Hmm. to see this from coast to coast, and they're happy to do so. And they're going back three nights in a row. Why? It's a a remarkable album. The longevity is incredible. I mean, we're talking 23, 24 million copies sold in the U.S. alone over those 30 years, and still, still selling to this day. It has a resonance for a generation of music listeners out there that is unparalleled by any album of that era, I think. Let's look at how they got there. Pink Floyd was already one of the most successful bands of the 70s when they started working on the wall. They had put out the album Animals in January of 77 and followed it up with what was then considered the biggest stadium or rock tour of all time. I mean, the fact that a rock band, four guys, were playing stadiums everywhere around the world, that was fairly unprecedented at the time. Remember that tour, Jim, or at least you've seen pictures of it, the idea of the flying pig and all these animals floating over the stadiums. You know, think about the time. This is the punk rock era. It was just dawning. Everything was being stripped down. Let's get back to basics. And then here Pink Floyd was playing stadiums with all these inflatable props overhead. It was somewhat of an alienating experience for the band. Although Waters had all these grand plans, the execution of it, left him rather cold. He felt like they were so remote from their audience at this point that he was no longer really enjoying the tour. And he was pulling away from the other band members. Waters would show up at gigs on that 77 tour in a helicopter while the other three guys in the band, David Gilmore, Nick Mason, and Richard Wright, would show up in a limousine. So they were barely speaking to each other. They were basically just performing these shows. Waters, who gave very few interviews, would sneer to some of his confidants during the middle of this tour. You know, these people are just showing up to drink beer. They're not here to listen to my message, to my music that well, I've poured my heart and soul into. A key song on animals is Sheep, mm-hmm. and he saw his audience as sheep. Not that he had disdain for these people, but he wanted them to engage with the music on the same deep intellectual level that he did. Indeed, and it built to a head on the last tour stop in Montreal in the summer of 77, where Waters actually spit in the face of one of the fans in the front row. He didn't really explain or justify his actions other than to say that it was a buildup of many months of despairing over the way this music was being received. And as he was driving away from that gig, 
He was talking with a couple of people, a couple of confidants, including Bob Ezrin, a famous producer in the 70s, who was a friend of his girlfriend's at the time, Waters' girlfriend. She worked as his secretary. Yes. And he was saying, you know, I just feel like building a wall between Mm. myself and this audience. That's the way I feel right now. And, And that was sort of the beginning of this idea of the wall as a concept album. I think the thing that freaked him out is that he spit in this kid's face and the kid liked it. <laughs> now this was happening, yeah. you know, that sounds vulgar today, right? But you got to remember, but the, the punk way of showing appreciation for a band was that you would spit at right. the group, the Clash or the Sex Pistols. I think that's part of what freaked him out. It also has to be said, Greg, that this tour was not only one of the most successful ever, but Pink Floyd had gotten beyond their wildest dreams success with The Dark Side of the Moon. And then they followed it up with two more albums that did almost as well, mm-hmm. almost unprecedented in rock and roll. You think of like Fleetwood Mac has Rumors, Michael Jackson has Thriller. Almost nobody is able to, to duplicate that success. And Pink Floyd's you know, Wish You Were Here at Animals hadn't duplicated it, but they came really close. Well, the one upshot of all that success was that I think Waters sort of viewed himself as the band, the conceptualist. When when you go back to the dark side, the first major breakthrough, they were still all pretty much collaborating. All four members were, if not sharing equally in it, at least there was a sense of camaraderie and collaboration. With each subsequent album... Waters began seeing himself as the idea man, the man with the grand plans, the the major songwriter, and the other guys were just kind of there to execute his ideas. Which is a problem when you have a guitarist like David Gilmour, <laughs> who have, you know, he's, is he a virtuoso like Eric Clapton or Jimi Hendrix? No. But you know what you can say about Gilmour? Nobody else's guitar sounds, sounds like Gilmour. Nobody like in it. the history of rock and roll sounds like that guy. Absolutely. Gilmore, in his own way, was a, a fine songwriter. As you said, the tone on his guitar was instantly distinctive. He had a great feel for melodies. He brought a lot to the table. Plus, he was a great singer. Yes. A uh, much better singer than Roger Waters. It should Who can't be really sing. Yeah. Right. So Waters needed these guys, although by the time they got done with the Animals Tour in the summer of 77, there was a sense of whether this band was even going to continue. They did not like each other at that point. But a financial crisis ensued. It turned out one of their accounts was scamming them, and they were out millions and millions of dollars as a result. This guy eventually got sentenced to three years in jail in the 80s. But meanwhile, the band suddenly had this shortfall of cash. Suddenly, to the other three members, Roger Waters' ideas about songwriting and creating an album sounded a little bit better to them. Okay. If Roger can give us another hit, let's yeah. let him do it. They're looking at you know that time-honored British superstar rock thing of becoming <laughs> a tax exile. Yeah. You, know, you get out of Great Britain for a year, and anything you create during that period, you don't have to pay taxes on back at home. This is how it was back in the day. The Rolling Stones had done it. Mm-hmm. And suddenly, Pink Floyd does it. Waters moves to Switzerland. Nick Mason moves to the south of France. It's a hard life, right? And Gilmore and Wright by Small Greek Islands. And Gilmore and Wright both released solo albums. There's a lot of talk about is Pink Floyd going to record again. Apparently, all this time, Waters is on a songwriting binge. Even though he's troubled by the relationships within the band, 
all of this turmoil is just fueling the songwriting process. He comes up with not one, but two concepts for albums during this period away. Finally, the band gets back together. They gather and say, okay, what are we going to do next? Roger Waters presents demos for these two albums. One is called The Wall, the other The Pros and Cons of Hitchhiking, which would become one of his first solo albums. The band looks at these two pieces of work and starts uh, analyzing them. Gilmore in particular, Ezrin has now been brought into the process. He is a famed producer at this point. He's in his 20s. He's eager to make his mark. He had worked with Kiss. He has worked with Alice Cooper. He worked with Lou Reed on that song cycle, Berlin. So Waters kind of knew that this guy had the chops to keep up with him, and he wanted to bring him in on the process. So Ezrin and Gilmore in particular are looking at these two albums, and they hear more of a song-oriented approach on the wall. They toss out the pros and cons of hitchhiking. They decide, okay, this is the one we want to work on. Let's focus on this. Ezrin is also looking at this, and he said, Roger, this album is really all about you. This is your album. This is a solo album in everything but name. It is about his personal story, his growing up in England without a father. His dad had been killed in World War II, basically raised by a single parent, his mother. His experience in schooling, his, his experience with authority figures, all of them pretty negative. Yeah. And pouring all of his fears and his sense of isolation and despair into this massive work. We're talking about 26 songs here, Jim, yeah. which is more com- than the previous three albums combined. Ezrin looks at this work and has a great sense of the big picture. He says, Roger, this is so insular, so personal, it's great, but in order for this to be a Pink Floyd album, we somehow need to make it more universal. So Ezrin took a lot of those concepts and and drew up a storyline that sort of created this character, Pink. And and apparently, you know, there would, would be the question that would emerge, which one's Pink? Because the guys in Floyd were famously anonymous. They didn't do many interviews. When they performed live, it wasn't about the personality. It was always about the music and the, and the spectacle. So here they are, ready to record. Ezrin has helped out with the big picture concepts. Waters is ready to go into the studio and start recording. The other guys aren't so sure, but they need the money desperately. So, okay, the wall is ready to go. Coming up on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX, we'll continue exploring Pink Floyd's 1979 masterpiece, The Wall. And later on, we'll review the new joint effort by writer Nick Hornby and musician Ben Folds, and I'll drop a quarter in the Desert Island Jukebox. Did, 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 did you see the frightened ones? Did, 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 did you hear the falling bombs? Did, 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 did you ever wonder why we had to run for shelter When the promise of a brave new world unfell beneath the clear blue sky Did, did, did you see the frightened ones? Did, 
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis, and my partner is Greg Cott, and we are conducting a classic album dissection of Pink Floyd's sprawling opus, The Wall. This concept album was the band's 11th release, but it wasn't an easy one for this long-running champion of art rock and psychedelia to make. Keyboardist Richard Wright left halfway through. This left the writing and recording to the other members, David Gilmore on guitar, Nick Mason on drums, and, of course, the songwriter Roger Waters, who's currently out there performing the record as part of a 30th anniversary tour, but without the other band members. You know, Greg, I I think all of the key members of Pink Floyd, as they drifted apart musically and geographically, it made for a tense setting, and the album took the better part of a year. They start out recording at Britannia Row, their longtime home in London, but decide that the equipment's just no longer up to it. They did some demos there. They were going to upgrade the studio, but then the tax thing kicks in. They can't stay in England anyway. Two different studios in the south of France, near Nice. Then they go to New York for a while to do the orchestrations. The orchestral parts are contributed by a fellow named Michael Kamen. He'd done a little bit of stuff for Clapton. He'd done a little bit of stuff for John Mellencamp. He worked with Bowie. He's recording members of the uh, New York orchestras, the Philharmonic and the uh, Symphony. Then they wind up in L.A. to mix. As it is, Nick Mason did most of his drum parts at the very beginning. He just stopped coming. He did what he had to do, and he figured, okay, you need an extra verse, just duplicate the tape and splice it in. You want to cut out a verse, just cut it out. Nick Mason's living, as I said, in the south of France. He's an aficionado for 1920s race cars, Mm -hmm. and so he's just racing around France, right? (laughs) Rick Wright, the most underrated member of Pink Floyd, the keyboardist, and his keyboard sounds are every bit as distinctive as what I was saying earlier about Gilmore. You should go skating on the thin ice of hot life. Wright had the same sort of way of approaching the early Moog analog synthesizers, the Hammond B3 organ, and he really had had a producer role on a lot of the earlier records, although they always credited to produced by Pink Floyd. 
he was a little bit at odds with Ezrin because now they have an outside producer, and that was traditionally his role. Waters is getting more and more angry with Wright. Wright is only coming in in the middle of the night and recording his parts when Waters isn't there. Meanwhile, although Ezrin had been really helpful to Waters, he's got it in for Roger now because Roger told him, you're not getting points on this record. Points are a system whereby the producer gets a percentage of all the records sold. You know, they were paying Ezrin for his time, but they're not giving him a piece of it. Gilmore always believes that his musical contributions to Floyd, and really, many Floyd songs are not songs without the Gilmore guitar solo. The whole story of Pink Floyd is the conflict between the ideas and the music. When they're together, it's brilliant. When they're not, you're in trouble. All sorts of weird stuff begins to happen in the Los Angeles settings because this is not just a double album. This is the blueprint for a theatrical production. So weird sound effects are coming in. They're hiring a young actress to play the voice of the groupie Trudy Young, who would go on to uh, voice some of the Muppets, (laughs) is the groupie. Are all these your guitars? I'm sorry, sir. I didn't mean to insult you. This place is bigger than our apartment. Let me know when you're entering a room. Yes, sir. Uh, can I get a drink of water? I was wondering. You want some? Huh? They had initially planned to have the Beach Boys do backing vocals on The Show Must Go On and Waiting for the Worms, but they couldn't get all the Beach Boys, so they got Bruce Johnston and Tony Tennille mm-hmm. of the Captain and Tennille. Yep. All sorts of strangeness with the, the way that the orchestra is being synced up and the way the sound effects are being dropped in, and it's all coming together, and everybody, by all accounts, after nearly a year, hates each other and can't wait to finish it. But Waters wants to do a handful of shows. They're going to stage The Wall several times, playing it in its entirety in London, in Los Angeles, and in New York. And I got to tell you, Greg, I was a sophomore in high school. My parents indulged me. We drove from Jersey City, New Jersey, to the Nassau Coliseum in Hempstead, (laughs) Long Island, so that I could see The Wall. I had my ticket. I was there with a high school buddy. And it was amazing. But... Even as a young rock critic, there were some problems. I mean, I loved Pink Floyd. They play the wall. They build the wall. They tear the wall down. And then I'm like ready for some animals and wish you were here. And then that was it. But, you know, they destroyed the stage. It was still something to see. There's a heavy-duty story behind this album, obviously. The, the authority figures, he lines up one after another, a- addressing a song to each one of them uh, along the way that had helped build the wall around him as a person throughout his life. You know, his mom, his teachers, his wife, becoming more and more isolated from society until in the second half of the album, he absolutely goes mad. He starts to see himself as this fascist kind of dictator figure and then we start melding into these ideas where the rock concert becomes like like a dictatorship, like a political rally that sort of puts another layer 
onto this character's isolation from society. He feels so removed from it. Now he's starting to become this authority figure himself and telling the crowd what to do, and the crowd is responding in kind. Are there any queers in the theater tonight? Get them up against the wall. There's one in the spotlight. He don't look right to me. Get him up against the wall. And that one looks Jewish. And that one's a cool. Whoever is my friend, to the room. It becomes almost like this meta concert where you feel like you are now isolated as Roger Waters, the character Pink that he's playing on stage, has become. And at the end, the wall all falls down. Presumably, everything's good at that point. The therapy has worked. You know, we we should talk about some of the songs that we uh, love uh, from this album. There's there's plenty to choose from. As I said, 26 tracks over four vinyl album sides. A a major major work uh, by any standard. Jim, for me, the, the the track that stands out the most is Mother. Again, one of those authority songs, obviously directed at the parent who raised him. He who says, well, this is more about a more generalized song. But it's clear that a lot of this song, a lot of this music is coming from Waters' personal experience. He was raised by his mother. His father died in World War II. And as a result, her way of keeping her son close was to smother him. At least that's the way he portrays it in this song. And that in itself led to certain insecurities about his ability to venture out into the world and experience it. The mother becomes this dictatorial figure in his life, and he is unable to go out into the world as a young man and experience it for himself without his parents' guidance. He does not throw stones at this parental figure who obviously meant well. And additionally, what I love about the song is that it is a great collaboration between him and Gilmore. Even though the two of them were no longer really on speaking terms, the beauty of their collaboration is very apparent on this song. And Gilmore sings one part and Waters sings the other. Yeah, so Waters is pink and Gilmore is the mother figure in this song and they're answering back and forth. And it's basically the two of them playing most of the instruments here. Ezrin, the, the producer, plays the essential organ and piano parts, and as you mentioned, Jeff Porcaro is on drums because Mason was not in the studio. One of the story goes that the song was in 5-4 time, mm. and, and Mason couldn't handle it, so that's why the studio guy was brought in. By the scale and standards of, of The Wall, which is this huge monstrosity of an album, this is a very intimate and poignant song, and, and very sad, too. So it's Roger Waters and David Gilmore of Pink Floyd on Mother on Sound Opinions. Mother, should I trust the government?
That is Mother by Pink Floyd from The Wall, the album work dissecting on its 30th anniversary. Greg, you know, as someone who loved, even at 16, and and I gotta say, The Wall is an album meant for 16-year-olds. I knew that musically and lyrically we had heard this from Pink Floyd before. Albums like More and Obscured by Clouds, Adam Hart Mother, had done the kind of idyllic, countryside acoustic Pink Floyd. And the song I'm going to play next, we'd heard that sound before. The heavy metal Pink Floyd, we'd heard it in the Nile song and in the nastier parts of Animals. In fact, I would say that conceptually and musically, The Wall is nothing but a retread in a lot of ways of The Dark Side of the Moon, Wish You Were Here, and Animals. We'd heard this business of all the things that alienate you from society. We'd heard this thing about how lonely and miserable it is to live in the modern world in general and to be a filthy rich rock star (laughs) in particular. These were all familiar themes. But there's something about the cartoon scale of The Wall, and it's there right in the cover art, you know, Mm -hmm. the, the cartoon depictions by Gerald Scarf of those figures, the mother, the teacher, the wife. Yeah, and there's nothing wrong with a good comic book, right? <laughs> you know, I think this is one of the best comic book moments. The song I'm going to play next, Run Like Hell. Pink Floyd, I will say, never rocked as hard again as they did on this song. As it became the Gilmore-driven, corporate-named Pink Floyd, but mm-hmm. not really a band anymore because Waters left, you know, they got softer and softer, more and more somnambulistic. As Waters went off on his own, he had a heck of a lot of ideas He didn't have any songs anymore. He didn't have any tunes. Gilmore was a great sonic craftsman devoid of ideas. Never have two guys needed each other as much. Here it was still gelling. This is one of the more Gilmore-heavy songs, although Roger is weaving it into his magnum opus. It's just ferocious. Run Like Hell by Pink Floyd on Sound Opinions.
That's Run Like Hell from Pink Floyd's The Wall, Jim DeRogatis' pick as the track, the keeper track from that album. Well, mainly because you got the mother first. I love that one, too. (laughs) Well, it's a beautiful moment, and especially on this current tour that Roger Waters is on showcasing his magnum opus. Uh, You know, Roger wants the world to know that he created this thing. Yes. And it was his work, and he's going to stand by it. So he's trotting it out for a major, major stadium tour. Uh, remember that you were one of the lucky few that got to see The Wall presented in its original incarnation with Pink Floyd, Jim. That show was staged only 31 times previously. At the time, you know, a $2 million production, it was not an easy thing to take out on the road at a time of $12 concert tickets. Yeah, uh, I think I paid 25 Now, Now the overhead is quite a bit steeper, but the ticket prices have gone up as well. Waters is charging as much as $250 to come see the current spectacle. He's hired a 12-piece band to support the show. Jim, I, I know you've always wondered, there are 424 bricks in the wall. In <laughs> uh, it's a spectacle. We both saw the show when it came through Chicago for the first of four nights, uh, basically a residency. I can say it has lost none of its appeal in terms of a visual spectacle. This show is crammed not just with bricks, those 424 bricks, but ideas. Yeah. Let it never be said that Roger Waters is a man, you know, one of the most brilliant musicians of his time. Clearly one of the most thoughtful stadium rock spectacles ever staged. You know, I think to bring it up to date, Jim, Waters wanted to sort of put this political spin on a lot of this material as well. It's not just the personal work about the isolation of an individual, but now it's about the isolation of nations from each other in the world. Well, during intermission, every brick in the wall, 424 of them, the house lights are on, but they put faces of people Mm -hmm. who've died in Iraq and Afghanistan, but also civilians from 9-11 and children from those countries where we're at war, it makes no sense to me. That actually offended me. Really? Because Yeah, because Waters started by writing about his father dying in World War II, and it was very personal. What it had to do with Iraq and Afghanistan and those those heart-wrenching losses people have suffered in those countries, I have no idea. It felt heavy-handed to me. Other Pink Floyd songs like Us and Them on Dark Side of the Moon had been mm-hmm. anti-war, but there's nothing really in the wall, aside from the, you know, Bring the Boys Back Home, which... Is a powerful musical statement if he just let the song play. Well, that's interesting. I, you know, I thought that was an affecting moment. Given the times we're living in, I don't begrudge him the idea of sort of making it more contemporary and extending it into that sort of geopolitical sphere. I think there were probably some people that are offended by it, too. And I salute him for his courage because I think he knew that a lot of his fans were not going to like some of the messages that are, that are steeped in it. More problematic for me... Just looking at the music itself, this is the least elegant Pink Floyd album, yeah, you know, yeah, without, without sure. a doubt. I mean, I think it is harsh, and, I don't, and God knows I love harsh music, but the beauty of those melodies uh, that really made those earlier Floyd records is not so much in abundance on this record. There are great peak moments on this record, but there is a lot of filler in here that's difficult to listen to. As a two-hour work, it's very up and down musically. The yeah, soundtrack well, the, for, the, for The Wall doesn't really work for me completely. That Brechtian finale of yeah. The Trial, which was mostly written by Ezrin, is just unlistenable. Look, not for nothing was this Billy Corgan of Smashing Pumpkins' favorite album of all time, okay? <laughs> this is an album about excess, and, and you're right, but it's still a lot of fun in a comic book way. That wraps up our classic album dissection of The Wall. 
If you want to comment about this album or share any of your own sound opinions, call 888-859-1800. You can also email us at interact at soundopinions.org or talk to us on Facebook and Twitter. Jim and I are going to be back with a review of the new album by songwriter Ben Folds and author Nick Hornby. That's In a Minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. That is A Working Day, a new track from Lonely Avenue, a collaborative album between the singer and songwriter Ben Folds and the British author Nick Hornby. Hornby's written a bunch of novels. He's also a music critic. His best-known book is probably High Fidelity, turned into a movie starring John Cusack, heavy musical context. Mutual admirer in Ben Folds. Folds has had a long career dating back to the early 90s, first with the Ben Folds Five. He's made a string of solo albums. He's also had a bunch of tangential projects. He's worked with Ben Queller and Ben Lee in a group called The Bens. He's been a judge on a nationally televised talent show called The Sing-Off, and he's been the producer for one William Shatner. There's a meeting of the minds. What an album, right? Hornby contributed some lyrics to that album that Folds produced for Shatner, and that led to the idea that, hey, maybe we should collaborate fully on an album together. Hornby submitting 30 sets of lyrics for Folds to look at. Folds turned those lyrics into 11 songs. Voila, we have Lonely Avenue. We're going to review the album in a second to see whether or not that collaboration works, but first let's play a track from it. It's called Levi Johnson's Blues from Ben Folds and Nick Hornby on Sound Opinions. This morning, what do I see? 3,000 cameras pointed at me. Deuce says you leave, I, I'm like, yes, that's me, sir. Well, you just knocked up the VP nominee's daughter. So I tell him, no, you got it wrong, mister. Sunny, your mother in law's a heartbeat from 
That is Levi Johnston's Blues from Ben Folds and Nick Hornby on Sound Opinions. Greg, that track epitomizes everything that is wrong with this album. Now, I want to preface this by saying I have never been a fan of that twee piano balladeer and sorority house heartthrob Ben Folds. But I am a super fan of Nick Hornby, okay? Mm. So I wasn't predisposed to dislike this, but these guys brought out the worst in each other, and Levi Johnston's Blues explains why. You have Folds, who has some serious chops as a Tin Pan Alley-level like songwriter. He can pull it off, but doing everything at once. You've got that Weezer-type whoa-whoa-whoa chorus, right? You've got the sha-na-na, bop-bop, shubapa in there, right? Mm. You've got a Yes synthesizer solo, and on top of it all, the Billy Joel rollicking piano. Musically, it's a disaster, but lyrically, it's even worse. Hornby in telling the story of Sarah Palin's grandkids' baby daddy, mm. it's about that Levi Johnston, kids. You could say, well, maybe he's going to show us a side of this insta-celebrity Generation Y exemplar that we didn't expect. I was thinking of a song like Steve Earle's John Walker's Blues, mm-hmm. but no, instead he panders to all the worst cliches and has Johnston sitting around firing a, a gun at Moose up in Alaska. <laughs> really? Nick Hornby, this is the best you can do? There are other songs on the album about a cyber stalker trying to figure out a girlfriend's password, log on, and a horrible would-be tribute to the great songwriter Doc Pomus that actually winds up being an insult. Mm. You know, Doc Pomus was a big guy. You could see him coming back from the dead and punching both Folds and Hornby in the face. A lot of people have a lot of respect for both of these artists, and they are fawning over this record. I have to say, this is the contender for one of the worst albums of the year, and there is no worse song than Levi Johnson's Blues that I've heard possibly in this entire decade. This is a trash it. Well, that's a bad song, but I I think there are worse ones on this album, actually. (laughs) Um, I am appalled at this project on a number of levels. One, the lyrics seem to be not only shoehorned in here, but uh, crowbarred. There's no sense that these lyrics were ever intended to be in a song. It, It feels like short stories, you know, way too wordy, no sense of elegance, very little sense of rhyme. Not necessarily that they have to rhyme, but these really don't work as songs. And what I get from Hornby at his best is a sense of emotional engagement, some emotional punch. And there's one or two moments on this record where I sort of feel that. Picture Window, I think, by far is the best-sounding, best-working lyric on this album. You know what hope is? Hope is a bastard. Hope is a liar, a cheat and a tease. Hope comes near you, kick his backside. Got no place in days like these. 
it's because it's pared back and it's about a very simple emotional moment in the daily life of a person that you can relate to. Otherwise, it's like a bad Broadway play. You're looking, you're waiting for a few hooks. It's so narrative-driven. The songs are trying to outdo the lyrics. The lyrics don't belong in the songs. It's a really bad match. It's a bad album. Trash it all the way. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. As often as possible on this show, we like to take a trip to the Desert Island and pop a quarter in the Desert Island jukebox to play a song we cannot live without. And this week, it is Jim DeRogatis' turn. Well, thank you, Greg. Having to deal with that mess of an album by Hornby and Folds, I was thinking, what are the other examples of great authors collaborating with musicians. You know, of course you have like Jim Carroll and you have Patti Smith, but they were musicians as much as they were authors. I was really trying to think of about about somebody who was a writer first and foremost, who succeeded in the musical world. There's no better example than William S. Burroughs. I'm a big fan of the Beats. Love Kerouac. You got to admire Ginsburg. He's just such a happy fellow, yeah. right? <laughs> Burroughs, I never understood until I got to hear recordings of him reading his work. That incredible crotchety old man voice, right? Mm-hmm. It's amazing. And then there was this period towards the end of his life when musicians from all sorts of genres were collaborating with him. They so loved that voice as a musical instrument. Of course, they loved his writings. He worked with Material, Bill Laswell, the wonderful no-wave experimental group from New York. He worked with the disposable heroes of hypocrisy, Michael Franti, who's now in Spearhead, and everybody else in between. My favorite musical collection, though, is Dead City Radio, which was overseen by Hal Wilner, who, of course, was the Saturday Night Live musician, producer, who resurrected a lot of artists' careers and did a lot of these kind of tribute records for a period there in the 90s. He brought on Chris Stein of Blondie, Donald Fagan of Steely Dan, Sonic Youth, but I think the perfect match, John Cale and William S. Burroughs. I want to play a track from Dead City Radio, which is based on two short Burroughs writings, Ah, Pook the Destroyer and Brian Geisen's all-purpose bedtime story, with John Cale providing the music and Burroughs himself doing the reading. Here's my Desert Island pick on Sound Opinions. It's summer. Spirit of early mists and showers, Ixta, goddess of ropes and snares. Ixgel, the spider web that catches the dew of morning. Zooey cock, virgin fire, patroness of infants. Adziz, the master of cold. Kaku bucket, who works in fire. Ixta, doom, she who spits out precious stones. Ex-Chun Chan, the dangerous one. Ah-Pook, the destroyer. Hiroshima, 1945, August 6. 16 minutes past 8 a.m. Who really gave that order? Answer, control. The ugly American, the instrument of control. Question. If control's control is absolute, why does control need to control? Answer. Control needs time. 
Question, is control controlled by its need to control? Answer, yes. Why does control need humans, as you call them? Wait, wait, time, a landing field. Death needs time like a junkie needs junk. And what does death need time for? The answer is so simple. Death needs time for what it kills to grow in, for our poop's sake. Death needs time for what it kills to grow in, for our poop's sweet sake, you stupid, vulgar, greedy, ugly American death sucker. Death needs time for what it kills to grow in, for our poop's sweet sake. You stupid, vulgar, greedy, ugly American death sucker like this. Brian Geisen had the all-purpose nuclear bedtime story. The all-purpose bedtime story, in fact. Some trillions of years ago, a sloppy, dirty giant flicked grease from his fingers. One of those gobs of grease is our universe on its way to the floor. Splat. Now that's the way an author and a musician should collaborate, Greg. William S. Burroughs and John Cale with Ah Pook the Destroyer and Brian Geisen's all-purpose bedtime story, my desert island pick. Good stuff, Jim. Next week on the show, we're going to have another show that I think you're going to love. We're going to explore the legacy of one of rock's greatest instruments, the Moog Synthesizer. Greg, as always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Let's look at our Sound Opinions production team as some of the actors who appeared in the movie High Fidelity. Our intern, Julia Mullen-Gordon, I think she's the Lisa Bonet character. Our producers, Jason Saldana and Robin Lynn, they are John Cusack and his sister, Joan Cusack. And our fearless leader, our executive producer, Tori southside Malatia. I'm sorry, but he is Jack Black. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. New messages. Hi, this is Becky from Austin, Texas. I was just listening to the show where you played Black Mountain, that Buried by the Blues song, and you were asking us to guess uh, influences. I was kind of surprised you guys didn't mention the Moody Blues. That's who I thought of first. Anyway, I enjoy the show, driving uh, somewhere early on Saturday mornings, and uh, I enjoy hearing music that I don't normally listen to. Thanks. Bye. forever Into the darkest shades Of from to the still colonies and slave forever Oh, buried by the blues Where you like a soldier And let your ghost run loose Hi guys, it's Bo from the Tri-State Tollway. I just finished listening to a podcast of your uh, summer road trip show. And the reporter uh, that you had talking about the scene in Portland, Oregon, happened to mention a band that he liked called 
Typhoon, and there was a track that you guys were playing underneath the discussion that you were having, and it sounded really intriguing. So much so that I went and searched out the record and got it, and boy, it is a terrific record. It has this wonderful uh, live, organic sound to it. The drum sound and the horn sound, it all sounds wonderfully rich and live, and uh, the whole thing is so orchestrally voluptuous. fantastic record uh, from start to finish and it's the kind of thing that I would never run into without your program so thanks so much for that keep up the great work Bye. Hi it's Jeremy Shatton from New York currently listening in Great Barrington Massachusetts Michael wrote the interview was fantastic that music is just great but a funny story is that when I was younger, in the late 70s, early 80s, shopping at Sounds on St. Mark's Place in New York, which was a pretty hip record store at the time, they had all the Noi records in the used bins with the 25-cent sticker on them. The 25-cent sticker was reserved for those albums that were worth maybe only the paper and vinyl that they were printed on and, and the cover was made of. And uh, because I was somewhat in lockstep with their some of their ideas. I never bought one, and uh, it was much to my chagrin when I finally heard Halo Gallo and other stuff later on, and the Harmonia stuff, five, ten years later, that I was just blown away by what amazing music it was. So, you know, you never know. If you go into a record store today, if you can find one, and there's something for 25 cents, uh, maybe take a chance. Talk to you later. Hi, guys. How you doing? This is 12-String Frank calling again from Staten Island, New York. Well, I was very happy to hear your report on U2 and the career of U2, 30 years, and very happy that you played the song from the first album, Uncat Dove, The Black Cat in Gaelic. I really love that song. I remember I wanted to do a 30th uh, anniversary and pick out some songs that I could learn on my guitar, and that one really stuck out, and I did learn it. I just love uh, the riff that's in it, and it's so different from uh, the other stuff, and then even later on. So I'm glad you did pick up on that. Thank you. Bye-bye. No more messages. To give us your opinions on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with more Sound Opinions, produced by WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.